a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. So glad you could join me for another exercise in reveling in wrong think. By the way, our show is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also Jeff Staples Real Estate, and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. If you have the opportunity to do business with my sponsors, I really hope that you'll consider doing so. You can always find links to them in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. So, shall we dive in today? Got a lot of interesting stuff to cover. Um, how hey, I want to throw a thought at you. I was having a conversation with a friend who was in law enforcement yesterday, and we were joking around, but he made a comment, just kind of an off-the-cuff comment about, uh, hey, what if we based the fine for your traffic ticket on your tax return? And I mean, we laughed about it. It's like, yeah, wouldn't I mean, you know, that's uh, people who are, are really into, you know, the whole, uh, you know, we ought to make the rich pay their fair share. And I, I have to admit, I, I, I thought about it for a moment and thought, man, that may not be such a bad idea. After all, that uh, $80,000 Mercedes... You know, that uh, thing can go a lot faster than my, you know, $20,000 Toyota. Anyway, we were joking about it, thought, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting take. Surprise, surprise, I came across an article today by Daniel Mitchell. This is uh, from Daniel J. Mitchell uh, at WordPress, dot WordPress, rather, dot com. Class warfare and traffic fines. And are, are you sitting down? There are people who are actually suggesting, well, maybe what we ought to do to make uh, fines more, you know, equitable to people is we ought to base it on their income level. If you're rich, you can afford a higher fine. Now, for the record, uh, Dan Mitchell is not about, uh, yeah, let's soak the rich. He's, he's not playing that game. But he does have a really fascinating take on the issue. And, and actually, I think he has, has an excellent recommendation of what could be done to protect the rich and poor alike from being treated like so many sheep and, and being fleeced by, you know, what I think some people could argue are unnecessary or sometimes arbitrary laws. He starts with a cartoon, and he says, one of the best political cartoons I've ever seen was this gem from Glenn McCoy. And it shows big government with its arm around the neck of a police officer, and big government is saying, more laws. More regulations, more revenue. And the police officer is gasping for breath and saying, more stops, more confrontation. And then there's a, there's a taxpayer with a policeman's arm around his neck saying, more air. But you think about it, there's, there's a lesson in that political cartoon. And, it, and as Dan Mitchell explains, it effectively captures how greedy local governments breed resentment and create conflict by using the law to fleece residents. And he says it will definitely be featured, he says, if he ever does another political cartoonist contest. Now, this isn't some trivial topic. He says he's written before about how fees and fines and charges can wreck the lives of the less fortunate. So how do we solve the problem? Well, he says Alex Schierenbeck, in a column for the New York Times, 
argues that we should impose much higher fines on rich people. There's a quote from the article. For people living on the economic margins, even minor offenses can impose crushing financial obligations, trapping them in a cycle of debt and incarceration for non-payment. He says across America, one-size-fits-all fines are the norm. Other places have saner methods. Finland and Argentina, for example, have tailored fines to income for almost 100 years. The most common model, a day fine, scales sanctions to a person's daily wage, so a small offense like littering could cost a fraction of a day's pay. A serious crime might swallow a month's paycheck. Everyone pays the same proportion of their income. Finland handed a businessman a $67,000 ticket for going 14 miles above the speed limit, 14 miles per hour above the speed limit. And he argues this is a matter of basic fairness, saying scaling fines to income is a matter of, of fairness. The flat fine threatens poor people with financial ruin while letting rich people break the law without meaningful repercussions. Equity requires punishment that's equally felt, a punishment that's supposed to prevent undesirable contact from happening in the first place, flat fines deter the wealthy less than everyone else. That's particularly true in cities like Ferguson that went easy on wealthier residents but treated poor people like cash cows. After all, the city would get more bang for its buck pulling over a rich driver with a blown blinker. Now, Dan Mitchell says, I think Sharon Beck is both right and wrong. He's correct that his approach would be more fair. An income-based speeding ticket would be akin to a flat tax. In other words, take the same proportion of everyone's income. Now, he says, for what it's worth, he made that argument with regard to traffic offenses back in 2015. But, he acknowledges, that won't do anything to help poor people. In fact, to be fair, the author doesn't claim it would. Now, if you're serious about uh, really protecting low-income people from greedy governments, that there are several options that should be considered. And I kind of like these. I think this is actually a pretty solid recommendation. Number one, have fewer nuisance laws that lead to fines, fees, and charges. Wouldn't that make sense? Fewer laws, at least the nuisance laws, the malaprohibita laws, and let uh, let police focus on laws that uh, that are dealing with actual crimes. Malum in se, or mala in se, rather. Things that create a victim. Secondly, he says, have income-based fines, but at a low level for rich and poor alike. And finally, perhaps most important, control government spending. Huh? (laughs) So politicians have less incentive to grab more money from people. Good suggestions, all of them. Now, he says, the bottom line is, I don't want government to screw over poor people, just as I don't want government to screw over middle-class people or rich people. And he adds a postscript here saying, my point about higher fines on the rich not helping the poor is the same as, as his argument that welfare class or welfare tax, let's try that again, class welfare taxes on upper income taxpayers don't really do anything to help the less fortunate. Indeed, poor people actually suffer collateral damage because of diminished prosperity. Interesting take. I don't expect you necessarily to, you know, agree with it. Although if you're nodding your head thoughtfully, that's fine. Thank you. <laughs> but isn't that an interesting take? You know, the idea of, well, maybe we should be, uh, you know, po- impo- imposing these fines based on, you know, what your tax return says. By the way, I like his focus on local. And I'm I'm going to be on a little bit of a kick um, in, in this hour of the show talking about the importance of, of staying on point locally. Because right now there's a ton of 
of uh, focus on national politics. In fact, really, you, you turn on pretty much any of the, the mass media, and that's all you're going to get. It's all about, did you hear about Nancy Pelosi's exchange with Wolf Blitzer? And um, Well, this stuff is interesting, and, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'll grant you, it's, you know, it's great entertainment in the same sense that uh, watching lions eat Christians at the Coliseum was also great entertainment, but it probably doesn't affect your life any more than you give it the power to affect your life, meaning that your efforts are probably better spent at the local level and less focused on just, you know, what are, what are the talking heads, what are the chattering class saying about whatever's going on in Washington? I've tried to make this case before, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I do believe that we spend so much time obsessing over national politics that uh, we actually fall into the trap of believing, no, this really is the most important thing in the world today. For instance, you know, the, the confirmation hearings going on right now with, um, what's her name, Amy Comey Barrett? I mean, it's it's fascinating from the standpoint of, okay, so a, a Supreme Court judge, you know, or a Supreme Court nominee is being um, questioned, you know, and the, the hearings are, you know, trying to determine if she's the right fit to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or I should just say in order to, to replace uh, a justice who has, has left the Supreme Court. But does it really affect your life? And I, I mean directly affect your life. Now, I know you could say, well, Brian, abortion rights and, uh, you know, so many other things that the court hears. I get that. In the macro sense, sure. But all of the drama, the posters, the, the posturing, and oh, my goodness, the posturing. And it's, it's on both sides. Although I will agree that in some cases, I think uh, people like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee are, are uh, posturing in the right way and perhaps even for the right reasons in urging, hey, can we remember this is a constitutional republic and not some weird hybrid democracy, the mob gets what it wants because it was loudest or, you know, uh, making the most noise in, in this corner and showing these posters? Bottom line is this. Local efforts are probably going to pay bigger dividends than all the effort and time and moral energy we expend following the national stuff. Back to when we come back the other side of the break, I'm going to give you a perfect example of why we need to stay engaged on the local level. It's been a while since I've seen one of these stories that just made me go, really? This is what passes for good governance uh, close to home? You're not going to believe it. But you're going to have to wait for it. We'll be back with it right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thank you so much for being a part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. I hope you will take the time, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, notice at the bottom of my show notes, there is a very conspicuous link there that uh, gives you an invitation to subscribe. And, and I, I ask you to consider this only because I know that uh, podcasting gives you the option of listening to it at your leisure. And I love the fact that at least one of the, the platforms, Anchor FM, breaks it up into uh, easily digestible segments. In other words, you can, you can actually sit back and, and uh, enjoy uh, you know, this half of the show on, on your way to work and the other half on your way home. It's, it's really up to you. There's also a link there 
that gives you the option to uh, to become a patron, to become a supporter of this show. Now, look, I don't I don't believe for a moment that I am the bee's knees, and I you know I'm the only source of truth that you can possibly trust. I'm one of many voices out there. Now, I want to think I have something unique to offer you. Perhaps it's my rugged good looks, or you know, an uncanny humility. I don't know. But uh, my bottom line here is, if you find value in the information that I share with you, the articles that I share, the guests that I have on this program, I would ask you, please consider being a supporter of the show. For as little as a dollar a month or $5 a month, some people I have, I have, actually have a, a pretty wonderful little cadre of people uh, donating $10 a month just because they say, I support the message. And if that's something that resonates with you, check out my show notes and consider becoming a patron, becoming a supporter of the program. All right, I promised you that I would give you something to uh, maybe raise your blood pressure just a little bit. I think this one ought to do it. The headline says, Annandale family fights to keep treehouse. Now, this is in Virginia, I believe in Fairfax County. And it's this is from a blog. Uh, it's uh, Annandale, Annandale, Annandale Eva at blogspot.com. A family on Holborn Avenue in Annandale with a treehouse in their front yard is fighting efforts by Fairfax County officials who say the structure needs to be removed because it violates zoning rules. According to the DePoigny family, the county sent them a letter saying they need to pay a $913 fee and get special approval to keep the treehouse or they'll have to tear it down in 30 days. Failure to comply could result in court-ordered sanctions or civil penalties, $200 for the first citation, $500 for subsequent citations, the, week, the Wakefield Weekly reports. Now, Erwin DePoigny built the treehouse back in May for his daughter Anna's ninth birthday. Sandra Lukic um, DePoigny writes on a Change.org petition, the kids used it for playdates and hangouts all used as a safe haven from COVID lockdown. The kids' summer holiday was gone, but the treehouse helped them still build happy 2020 memories. And this petition at change.org apparently asks community members for support, not for donations. It urges people to please sign this petition to build a strong case in front of the county and help Anna save her birthday treehouse. If enough people sign the petition, the family's hoping that will encourage the county to grant an exception. Now, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but can I just be blunt? What the hell? Why, why, why is this even a matter for their local government? You look, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, and I know that was a while back, you know, but um, tree, houses, tree houses were the norm. Most of us, at some point, either started to build or actually succeeded in building a treehouse. And I remember some really cool kids who, you know, they and their parents actually took it really seriously. I mean, there, there was a couple of friends I had who had tree houses that were just a thing of magnificence. And they were a terrific part of learning and solving problems and overcoming and, and learning what a visit to the emergency room is like when you fall out of the tree and you break your arm. I'm sure my experience is not so different from what your experience might have been. But not once. Did we have to contend with the idea that, well, you know, uh, we should probably check with the zoning commission first and see if there's a variance or something they'd be willing to grant us for the privilege of nailing a few pieces of lumber up in this tree on our own property? 
I ask again, why does government even need to be involved in the first place? And a $913 fee and getting special approval? I'm sorry, but that sounds a little too mafia-like to me. Hey, uh, we noticed something good is happening uh, in your yard here. The kids, they look happy. I noticed there's a new structure in your tree. Be a shame if someone were to issue you some paper making you tear it down. We're not asking for much. We just want our cuts. You're happy? We're happy. We just want a piece of your happiness. And so they make him an offer that they can't refuse. Well, (laughs) without uh, risking $200 for the first citation and $500 for subsequent citations. How does this even become a matter of local government? And by the way, I've, I've, I've pointed to the safety issue before. I know full well. Well, look, you know, Brian Kidd says it's a safety issue. And that uh, treehouse isn't up to code. That's not the point of a treehouse. Kids have been climbing trees as long as there have been kids. And kids have been falling out of trees as long as there have been kids. This is part of the growing experience. If you haven't fallen out of a tree, my friend, you are missing out on one of the great teaching experiences of life. Even if it's just teaching you, don't be so cocky (laughs) when you think that your climbing skills are above average. I just don't understand why the county has to insert itself, and you must beg permission. If there was ever a place for there to be local activism, I think that's where it's spent. Yeah, the national stuff is interesting, and it gets all the press time, but I would rather see neighbors rally around this kind of thing then spend all of their time, you know, hyperventilating over, well, who are you going to vote for? Did you see what happened today? Oh, my gosh. Washington, D.C. You know, they get all breathless over it. And I can think of a couple other examples where local government gets involved, where it really isn't needed to get involved. One of these examples was a family, and I'm sorry, I don't have the information in front of me, so I'm kind of doing this from memory. Basically, it was an elderly couple. The wife is wheelchair-bound, and the husband, being elderly, is not strong enough to carry her to and fro out of their their front uh, door. So their son came along and built a very workable wheelchair ramp. But some busybody, I don't know if it was a neighbor, I don't know if it was, you know, a, a code enforcement officer prowling about the neighborhood, noticed, well, I see you got a new wheelchair ramp there. They made them tear out the ramp. And the family actually even tried, you know, to, to placate their local officials. And they got the first notice, hey, by the way, you have an unapproved addition to your front step. You need permits. You need, you know, to do this. And so the, the family, to their credit, I mean, they, they tried to, to go through the process. Okay, we'll get the permits. We'll, we'll do what, what we need. And, and, and the county government, I think I'm pretty sure it was the county, dug in their heels. No. Nope, you got to tear it down. Why? Because you didn't ask us first. See, there's this rule of bureaucracy which says if you give someone enough power, they will take it to some ridiculous, unproductive end. I think that's Gary North's law of bureaucracy. And there's a good example of it. Tear it down because you didn't ask our permission. Here's the kicker. People look for reasons to justify why why the county should have stepped in and, and stopped them and made them tear it out. Well, you know, it might not have been safe. Okay, can you show me where someone was injured by that? Well, no. Then what is that based on? You know, you're trying to punish people preemptively for something that hasn't actually happened. 
it's none of the county's business. It, it shouldn't be their business in the first place. Again, I really think it comes down to, well, we want our cut. We want uh, what, what's, what's, do, what's owed to us. Nothing is owed to you. And by the way, they did have to tear down the ramp, which effectively made this poor woman in her wheelchair homebound. She and her husband no longer could freely get in and out of their home, at least with ease. I don't think that solved any problems. In fact, I think it just compounded existing problems. So if you're going to exert some effort and moral energy, might want to start at the local level. I'm just saying. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. I really feel blessed today. I've been able to find some uh, some great stories, some interesting stuff that I, I don't think is the standard, you know, run-of-the-mill things that everything everyone else is talking about. Oh, and I do want to mention my sponsors. I'd like to give a special shout-out, especially to, uh, John, to uh, John Staples and his wife, Heather, the uh, Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Great people. I've known John for many, many years. Long enough to know he is truly one of the hardest working and best people that I know, which is why when it comes to the biggest purchase of your life, that's the guy I would recommend you turn to. And and here's the good news. Patriot Home Mortgage has offices operating in 23 different states. They started small, but they have grown to be quite the powerhouse. And if you are looking to get pre-qualified for a home loan, maybe you're looking, you know, you're ready to go shopping, you want to know, you can go out with confidence. Yeah, we are pre-qualified to this amount. Get in touch with John and Heather, the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You just go to staplesmortgage.com. All the contact info is there. If you want to refinance your existing home mortgage, they can help you with that too. Trust these folks. I would trust them. I'm encouraging you to trust them, and I would appreciate when you contact them. And by the way, some of you have, and I appreciate that. Tell them I'm doing this because I heard Brian talking about you. My sponsors appreciate knowing their message reached your ears. Well, you know, 2020 has been kind of a mixed blessing in some ways. Case in point, uh, you know, politicians have been so busy flexing over a virus that they really haven't had time to push for what uh, they used to call common sense gun control. And then you have, of course, the fact that several million people have purchased guns and pretty much all the ammo that has ever been uh, created. (laughs) At least that's what it seems like. There was a great article on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. This is from Mark W. Smith, and I thought this was kind of timely. Just because, look, my prediction is no matter who wins in the November election, it's a pretty safe bet that at some point the control freaks are going to want to focus again on somehow we've got to control guns. There's going to be a high-profile shooting of some sort, and by implication they're going to say this proves that we must take the guns or we must control what you have access to. Well, I want you to, to put that into context because a lot of people have learned this year, as witnessed by those millions upon millions of gun sales, that when it comes to protecting what is near and dear to you, That responsibility is going to fall on your shoulders first, not on the government's. So I think it's going to be a pretty hard case for them to make. 
This is an article from Mark W. Smith. More people use a gun in self-defense each year than die in car accidents. And it just needs to be reinforced every so often. They are a life-saving tool, not a menace to public safety. He asks, how is it that so many kids raised on Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, Star Wars, and all the Marvel action figure movies managed to miss a critical point of the stories? The lesson being, if you want to prevail over evil villains, you must have the proper tools to fight back. Mark Smith says millions of people protect themselves and their families with guns every day in the United States. They choose guns as a means of self-defense for the same reason the Secret Service uses them to protect the president. Guns stop bad people from doing bad things to good people. And he says it's absurd to speak about the right of self-defense in theory and then deny people the tools they need to exercise that right. Bottom line is without a gun, most Americans are defenseless at the hands of a violent criminal. How many of us have hand training in hand-to-hand fighting or the physical strength and the mental resilience to react in a fight-or-flight situation to repel an aggressive predator, especially someone who attacks us first and is armed with a deadly weapon? Now he asks, does a gun guarantee your safety? No, but it gives you the ability to defend yourself against an armed, physically superior, or mentally unstable attacker, sometimes a combination of all three. So why in the world would anyone not want to have the means to protect themselves and their families against criminal predators and lunatics? Worse yet, why would anyone actively lobby their government to deprive themselves and every other law-abiding citizen of the most effective means to protect themselves? His point is guns are life-saving tools. Now he says the gun grabbers are convinced that if we shut down the National Rifle Association and take away guns from law-abiding gun owners then bad people will no longer have the tools to do bad things. But Mark W. Smith says a gun is a tool. Plain and simple, you should own a gun for the same reason you install smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, purchase fire extinguishers, and buckle your seatbelt. It's because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Some pe- or smart people, he says, are prepared. Foolish pre- people bring a knife or nothing at all to a gunfight. But see, here's where the gun grabbers say, well, there's no evidence that guns save lives. But the truth is, if there's no proof that guns save lives, why does every American law enforcement agency, including the U.S. Secret Service, carry guns? What's the point of the guns? There's an old saying in the world of investing, do what the smart money does. This means that when you personally invest, it makes sense to buy and sell the same investments as the smart money people. Large banks, institutional investors, hedge funds, and investment gurus like Warren Buffett. The idea is that these industry leaders have a better understanding of the marketplace and better access to information than ordinary investors do. And that is usually true. So what do the smart money people do when it comes to protecting lives? And the answer is virtually all professionals carry guns, and lots of them. Federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies charged with protecting the streets you walk on all carry guns. The Secret Service protects the president with guns. The Federal Department of Homeland Security, with its $44 billion annual budget, issues its own agents handguns and fully automatic rifles. Rifles, uh, you know, far more complex than the uh, AR-15s many gun grabbers don't want you to have to protect yourself. So the smart money in the business of protecting lives chooses guns. Yeah, they choose guns. But he says, if you don't want to follow the smart money on guns, then let's turn to the statistical scoreboard. 
Does civilian gun use help in self-defense against criminals? Get ready, because he brings some facts and figures to this debate. The U.S. Department of Justice investigated firearm violence from 1993 through 2001. And the report found in 2007 to 2011, about 1% of non-fatal violent crime victims used a firearm in self-defense. Now, anti-gun zealots attempt to use this statistic to discredit the use of a gun as a viable means of self-defense, and by extension, to discredit gun ownership in general. But Mark W. Smith says, look deeper into the numbers. During that five-year period, the Department of Justice confirmed a total of 3,000, I'm sorry, 300, 330, let's try that again, 338,700 defensive gun uses in both violent attacks and property crimes where a victim was involved. That equals an average of 67,740 defensive gun uses every year. In other words, according to the Justice Department's own statistics, 67,740 people a year don't become victims because they own a gun. And he says, I suspect that if more states allowed concealed carry to be widespread, the number of instances of defensive gun uses would be even higher. Is it significant that at least 67,740 individuals use a gun in self-defense each year? Well, in 2016, 37,461 people died in motor vehicle accidents in the U.S. In 2015, that number was 35,092 people. Mark Rosekind, administrator of the National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration, called those road fatalities an immediate crisis. So if the NHTSA administrator considers it a crisis that approximately 37,000 people are dying annually from car accidents, then saving nearly twice that many people each year through the use of firearms is simply stunning. He says, in reality, the Department of Justice findings about defensive gun uses are very conservative. A 2013 study ordered by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and conducted by the Institute of Medicine and the National Research Council found that defensive use of guns by crime victims is a common occurrence. Almost all national survey estimates indicate that defensive gun uses by victims are at least as common as offensive uses by criminals, with estimates of annual uses ranging from about 500,000 to more than 3 million. In the context of about 300,000 violent crimes involving firearms in 2008, On the other hand, some scholars point to a radically lower estimate of nearly 108,000 annual defensive uses based on National Crime Victimization Survey. The most comprehensive study ever conducted about defensive gun use in the U.S. was a 1995 survey published by criminologist Gary Kleck in the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology. That study reported between 2.1 and 2.5 million defensive gun uses each year. Look, ultimately, the number of defensive gun uses doesn't matter that much to the anti-gun zealots. Whether that number is 67,000 or 2.5 million or anywhere in between, they'll do whatever they can to dismiss defensive gun uses as insignificant. They only want to focus on the dead people lying in the street rather than those folks who use a firearm to remain standing. Mark W. Smith says, I suspect those people still alive would have a different view. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm going to invite you to check out the show notes. I always supply links to the various articles or links to the, the websites or you know the blogs of the various guests that I have on this program. There's a, there's a whole page dedicated to resources for wrong thinkers. And these are some of the different news aggregators, some of the different sources that I like to go to on a daily basis. In fact, there are some of them that I, I give uh, what I consider my highest five-star recommendation, uh, meaning I encourage you to subscribe to the emails. Places like uh, fee.org or aier.org or lourockwell.com or ericpetersautos.com. You can actually subscribe to many of these and get daily emails. And it's on a wide variety of subjects, and it'll, it'll just give you a lot of good food for thought. I don't recommend stuff that is just partisan, you know, here's what you should be mad about today. I think you're better than that, and I think I'm better than that, too. At least I try to be, you know, I try to think at a little bit higher level than simply, here's, uh, here's your marching orders, and, you know, here's your pit, pitchfork, here's your torch. Now go out there and make some noise. I like to share with you information sources that are principled above all, but also thought-provoking. And so the resources for wrong thinkers, I think you will find very worth your time. Again, go to thebrianhideshow.com, check out the show notes, uh, and, and that the resources for wrong thinkers is actually an entire page itself. Spend some time on the website. Oh, and can I ask one more thing? Give me your feedback. Seriously, drop a comment. You can do it at the end of the show notes. You can actually send a message through the website. But uh, I appreciate constructive criticism, and, uh, and I need it. Because I don't always see things as clearly as you do from your vantage point. So it's, it's very helpful. All right, here's, here's a topic that uh, I don't think gets talked about enough. And that is one of the more interesting political obsessions that you're likely to encounter. It's the funding conspiracy theorist. There was a character who I ran into when I lived in southern Utah who was just all over this. Anything that he did not, uh, that he couldn't uh, agree with was something that was being funded by the Koch brothers. Charles Koch is, uh, is putting money into this. In other words, that was, that was kind of his default setting. Whatever he criticized, somehow it was tied to the Koch brothers, meaning some billionaire somewhere is funding this. And by the way, there is this same kind of approach on the political right and, and usually it's George Soros, right? Soros is funding all the Black Lives Matter protests. He's funding Antifa. He's funding this. He's funding that. Now, look, there may be some truth there, but I don't believe for a moment that, uh, that the uh, funding conspiracies are where our time is best spent. And probably the best example of this that I've seen recently is the people trying to detract from the Great Barrington Declaration. Right, these these uh, three world leading epidemiologists who've come together, insisting there's a better way than these uh, these draconian lockdowns to approach the uh, novel coronavirus. And you know the the attacks and the smears and the people trying to cast doubt on this declaration. One of the big things they keep turning to is, well, <laughs> you know, the Koch brothers have have funded this, which is not true, by the way. But that seems to be one of the ad hominems or guilt-by-association fallacies they're throwing around out there. Joaquin Book, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, says one of the many flaws in today's scientific and political discussion is the emphasis of money 
campaign donations in politics, funding declarations for scientists in academia, concern about where or from where an NGO receives its donations. He says it's as if money rules the roost. Money makes the world go round. But he says it doesn't in politics. It doesn't in career choices. It doesn't in academia. It's widely believed that politicians and scientists are up for sale, that waving a stack of money before their incredulous eyes can have them produce whatever policy, opinion, or scientific result is required. And he says one of the first objections raised when we're presented with factual claims we don't like is to dispute the source. Why, that's not a reputable publication, we say. That's not a serious scientist. And he or she's, anyway, in the pocket of some rich, evil, anti-human person or industry we disapprove of. He says, if our conversation partner or the newspaper we're reading discusses some, for us, uncomfortable scientific result, there's a convenient shortcut that lets us off the hook. Summon doubts about the financing. If the researchers received money from some corrupt institution, seemingly evil person or industry we don't like, well, we can safely disregard their results. Whew. We don't need to engage with whatever the researcher is saying or investigate the scientific backing of his or her claims. We can reject them all without all that and take the rest of the afternoon off. (laughs) I'm sorry, but he nailed it. He says the scientist is clearly a dupe, bought and paid for a quack, and must surely have faked his or her entire research agenda. Examples where we mistakenly do this, he says, abound. Big pharma funding biases, which drugs would get approved. The sugar industry funds this or hatchet job or that hatchet job on its competitors. Big oil funds climate deniers and on and on and on. The unspoken and unexamined assumption is that money buys research and that the source of funding matters, that science itself is available for sale to the highest bidder. And he says this is false. He says the truthfulness or factfulness of a proposition does not depend on the biases of the person uttering it, psychologically, ideologically, pecuniary or otherwise. It depends on the nature of the evidence taken together with other scientific attempts at replicating and reproducing the result, the method in question, or the various selections going into the research design and data collection. Now, he says these in turn can be maliciously manipulated with an ideological or financial agenda in mind, But the fact that the researcher received funding is a smoking gun only if you think anything can be proven with statistics. And thankfully, we don't operate science under an anything-goes label. There's method and procedure, objective proof capable of replication rather than manipulated experiments or fake data, fake data giving a researcher like a marionette whatever results his funders desire. He says as soon as the bought and paid for objection is raised, two things happen. First, we start investigating the funding relationships behind the research in a totally unworthy fashion, remarkably akin to identity politics. What someone says is downplayed in favor of the skin color, gender, class, or demographics of the person saying it, or in this case, their funding bodies. That is, we cease following the proud tradition of the Enlightenment and turn back time a few centuries in the application of scientific inquiry, devout believer or heretic destined for the stake. Second, he says, we disregard the evidence of the case in question. Instead of looking at what matters for the case at hand, we look at what doesn't matter. The identity of the researcher, her previous allegiances, or funding backgrounds. 
And he says, if you don't want to take my word for it, much smarter people than me have made this exact point. This bias doctrine was rejected by none other than Ludwig von Mises in his 1957 theory and history. Quote, it does not in the least detract from the soundness and correctness of a theory if the psychological forces that prompted its author are disclosed. The motives that guided the thinker are immaterial to appreciating his achievement. Interesting stuff. And he says this also isn't a left-right divide, as left-wing environmentalist organizations gladly do it too. You know, for instance, renewable uh, clean energy initiatives produced by, or sponsored by producers of wind turbines or natural gas companies. Or for every right-wing hack funded by some disliked rich organization or person, Murdoch, oil industry, Coke Foundation, you name it, there's a similarly left-wing push with less than pure intentions. For every climate change skeptic funded by the oil industry, there's an organic food industry pushing for banning GMOs. Now, he goes into some more detail here. I'm just going to kind of jump ahead because he talks about the Great Barrington Declaration. And one of the recent hatchet jobs by Nafiz Ahmad, which uh, was just uh, published in the uh, Byline Times... A collection that, you know, he took to task this collection of scientists, medical professionals, and concerned citizens arguing that the cost of lockdowns far outweigh their illusory benefits. This is a, an initiative recently launched by the American Institute for Economic Research. Well, Naf- Nafiz Ahmad, instead of arguing with the scientists on the declaration or on the merits of the scientific questions themselves, Ahmad investigated AIER's funding relationships. Surely anyone saying something that Ahmad disagrees with must be a quack. And sure enough, he managed to dig up a tiny relation to the Charles Koch Foundation, a $68,100 donation from 2018. By the way, the publicly available financial statements of AIER show a balance sheet of $37 million, with another $167 million held in split interest agreements. Ha! Therefore... The Great Barrett Declaration, Great Barrington Declaration must be false because of this tie. Look, it's sloppy, and I would encourage you, read the rest of the article. Joaquin Books says science can and does go wrong. It's our job to spot its errors, to point them out, and to fix them, but not to yap on irrelevantly, rather, about where the money came from. The ideological convictions of funders play a remarkably small role in how science can go wrong. Check out the article on my website, thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.